0: Blog Talk Radio. The Bible, that's the book for me.
1: The Bible, that's...
0: i finish with the V I B L E I'm your host, Melissa Ketchel, our Truth Be Toll Radio. Listen to that. And I'm going to start the lesson. This is John MacArthur, Glory, and... Wait, sorry. I'm not getting get ready. Sorry. Glory. And... uh, uh can't find it. Um... Oh s gonna play a sorry about that. Play a song. find it
2: The Bible, where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day, and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve, made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree, do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you surely go Die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So, as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this there's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. today the greatest saints had their flaws on full display and it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that christ is the only way adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life abraham got scared and lied about his wife sarah laughed to herself when she heard god's promise rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest aaron used crafts to make a golden calf moses Got mashed up the rock with a stab. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So, as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this there's only one hero, and his name is Jesus.
0: This is John MacArthur, Gospel Glory Impossible.
3: The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you have never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called "Found God's Peace." It will show you the power you have as a believer to defeat worry and to experience profound peace in every circumstance. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's peace at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2021. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur.
4: This morning as we come to the revelation of God in His Word, we are drawn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have been over a number of weeks now talking about the fact that there are two kingdoms in the world. There are two rulers in the world. There's the kingdom of light ruled by Christ who rules by the power of His Spirit through His church by indwelling believers. And there is the kingdom of darkness ruled by Satan, who by his demons and human agents, and by the influence that he has on the human heart, rules the world that is passing away. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world." The kingdom of this world is evil and headed for hell. However, Jesus said, My kingdom is present in this world. It is the kingdom of righteousness, and the folks who are in that kingdom are headed for heaven. That's the simple way to look at the world around you, the kingdom of darkness manifest by sin, kingdom of light manifest by righteousness. The kingdom of darkness ruled by Satan and all who are outside of Christ are in the kingdom of darkness, and they follow their father, the devil, who is a liar and a murderer. Kingdom of righteousness manifest in the church, the true church, The King is Christ, and He indwells every true believer. Why did the Lord leave us in the world? We have been looking at that. It's it's an obvious answer. All who are in the kingdom of light are commissioned to shine the light of the gospel into the darkness so that the Lord can redeem His elect people. Now as you look at 2 Corinthians 4, this becomes clear to us. If you look at verse 3, the apostle says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And I just want to focus on that incredible statement the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The light is just that. That defines the light that we shine into the darkness. It is the light of the gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It says it again down in verse 6. The one who has shone in our hearts has done so to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The light is the gospel of Christ. Christ is the very incarnation and image of God. That's why we're here, and that's why he says in verse 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for jesus sake back in chapter 1 verse 19 we read for the son of god christ jesus who was preached among you by us by me and sylvanus and timothy was not yes and no but is yes in him for as many as are the promises of god in him they are yes Therefore, also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. What is Paul saying there? He is saying all the promises of God are bound up in Christ. He is the yes to the promises of God. So for us to shine the light means the light of the gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Acts 4.12 says there's no salvation in any other... Romans 10.17 says they can't be saved unless they hear the message concerning Christ. Unlike the preachers that Jeremiah addressed who preach the deceptions of their own mind, who speak a vision from their own imagination, we do not preach ourselves. We preach Christ. And you heard that even sung so beautifully today. Now necessarily when you're preaching Christ, you're calling sinners to repent. I read that in Psalm 51 and you heard it in the last hymn sung by the students. It is necessary if they are to receive the good news that they hear the bad news. They don't want that. They love the darkness rather than the light. They cherish their sins. They flaunt their sins to one degree or another. Even Jesus said in John 7, 7, you hate Me because I tell you, your deeds are evil. That is what generates the hostility and the hate. Because first of all, the dominating human sin is pride. People want to defend their goodness, their nobility. And when you unmask the wretchedness of their hearts, they're usually angry. In the flesh, they're angry, and apart from the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, they will remain angry. In the face of opposition, then, the question is, in the face of hostility and in the face of persecution, how do we remain bold in proclaiming Christ, which means confronting sin? Well, Paul answers that in this text, as we saw last time, You'll notice in verse 1, he says at the end of the verse, we do not lose heart. And then down in verse 16, he says it again, therefore we do not lose heart. So he, he sort of brackets the revelation here with this idea that he doesn't lose heart. He doesn't defect. He doesn't give up. He doesn't give in. He doesn't demonstrate cowardly flight. He doesn't give in to evil. He could actually come to the end of his life and did. And he said, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the course. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord shall give to me, but not to me only, but to all who love His appearing. All of us would want to come to the end of life and say, I fought the good fight, right? I kept the faith. I finished the course. How do you do that? Realizing that the confrontation of sinners is going to result in hostility Jesus said as i've pointed out if they hate you don't be surprised if they hated me they're going to hate you and they hated him to the point that they actually executed him in spite of all the good good that had never been seen in the history of humanity and never will be seen again until Jesus comes they killed him anyway because he confronted their evil So you have to recognize that that's a reality and it cannot be avoided. If you avoid it, you are defecting. If you avoid the confrontation with sin, you are defecting. Now it is to be done with love graciousness, mercy. The very kindness of God is extended in salvation to the sinner, and we have to bring that message in that same fashion. Now what kept Paul locked down on his spiritual responsibility, no matter how much persecution he received. And as we pointed out last week, his whole life was basically a life in which he saw people come to faith in Christ, and at the same time, hostility ramped up to the point that almost everywhere he went, the threat of jail and death followed him. In fact, He says a little later in this very chapter, verse 12, so death works in us so that life can work in you. I live every day on the brink of execution at the hands of people who hate the gospel so that I can get the gospel to you so that you can believe. So how do you have that kind of bravery? How do you have that kind of courage? It comes from convictions. It comes from down inside related to the things that you believe that are non-negotiable. And we've been looking at those, and today we'll take a few of them. I don't think we'll finish the chapter. But I, I just want to remind you of the first one. The first thing that was a conviction, a certainty in Paul's mind, was he was certain about the superiority of the new covenant. In verse 1, since we have this ministry. What ministry is he talking about? The one he just described in chapter 3. You go back to chapter 3. And you look, for example, at verse 7. He describes the old covenant, the law, as the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones. It had glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of His face fading as it was. If there was glory in the law which only condemned, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? for if the ministry of condemnation has glory much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory so he is saying that the new covenant in Christ has far more glory than the old covenant law he had no this is important he had no hesitation regarding the truth of the gospel that's where everything starts that's why we make such an issue out of you understanding the gospel You must understand it. You must believe it. You must understand its superiority and its absolute uniqueness and excellence. He knew as a former Pharisee who had lived in extreme bondage to the old covenant, and that, of course, didn't save him. It only condemned him. But he knew what it was to live at the most extreme level under the law. And when he came to Christ, he found that the righteousness of God A free gift to Him by faith far surpassed the bondage of His effort at self-righteousness. I think it's true to say that the people who have been delivered from the worst are more likely to be eager to talk about the best. Many of us kind of grew up in a Christian family where we We were delivered from our sins, but not in the way that someone is delivered who has lived virtually a lifetime in lies and error and bondage. I think it's true to say in the church, the people who have been saved from the most, as Jesus said, are the most thankful and likely to talk the most about the glories of the new covenant. For the rest of us, we have to gain that conviction, not from our own experience, but from what we know about the truth. Paul had certainty about the superiority of the new covenant. From personal experience, he was passionate about making sure sinners heard the good news. Secondly, he was certain that ministry was a mercy. He says, we have this ministry as we received mercy. That is to say, he never lost sight of the fact that this was an overwhelming mercy to allow him to preach this message. This is not something that that you earn by your education. This is not something that you earn by your erudition. This isn't something you earn because you have a, a gift for speaking. Any of us who has ever been given the privilege of proclaiming the gospel knows it is a mercy. We preach a far better message than we can live. But we also understand that if God couldn't use flawed people, He couldn't use anybody because we're all flawed. Paul never got over the mercy of putting him into the ministry as we saw in 1 Timothy. The third certainty in his life that we looked at last time was he was certain of the need for a pure heart. And that's what he says in verse 2. We've renounced the things hidden because of shame. There's no secret life. There's no hidden life. There's nothing to be discovered. We have been exposed to the uncovering of an evangelist and apologist who died, and after his death, there's an unbelievable explosion of wretchedness that comes out of the testimonies of the people whom he abused. Some men's sins follow after them, Paul says. Paul had no fear of that. No fear of that. No no fear of a post-mortem episode where the truth would come out because he had no hidden life of shame. He said his conscience was clear and he was winning the spiritual battle on the inside. And if you want to be useful to the Lord, you need to be a, a clean vessel. And we saw, fourthly, that he was certain of the duty to accurately preach the Word. He says, not walking in craftiness or deceptiveness or adulterating the Word of God, but rather by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word, that's the negative, but by manifestation of the truth, that's the positive. He was commending Himself even to the unbelievers and in the sight of God. That brings us to a fifth point. The apostle was certain that salvation is the sovereign work of God, and this is where we stopped last time. Paul was certain that salvation is the sovereign work of God. Immediately in verse 3, he he says, and this is is so helpful to us because we're asking the question, so we have a pure life, so we're faithful in handling the Word of God, proclaiming the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Why don't we have results? Well, why don't we get the results we want? Paul immediately says that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, to the category of people who by nature are perishing, those who are perishing, to them He says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the gospel is foolishness. It is not understandable, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man understands not the things of God. They're foolishness to him. It's incomprehensible because the people in the category of the perishing, those who are on their way to hell, are by definition dead in trespasses and sins. They have no mechanism to respond to the truth. Further, are not, not only are they perishing, but the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. The very category of perishing is a, consist- is a, is a consistency or a state of, of blindness. But he adds a kind of double blindness, a satanic kind of blindness, so people can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this is a This is the resistance we have. They they resist us because they're offended. They resist us because they're bound in death. They resist us because they're satanically blinded. Romans 11.8 says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not. They can't see. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, they can't comprehend. They are stone blind. Just to comment on that phrase, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Christ has glory as the image of God, right? He has glory. He shares the glory of the Father. Hebrews 1, He's the exact representation of the Father, the image of the Father, in Him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. He is the fullness of God's revelation. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, and it was the glory as of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. So He has glory in His incarnation as God. He has glory as the image of God. But there's a second kind of glory being talked about here, and it is this. He has the glory of the gospel. Yes, He has glory as the image of God. That's His intrinsic glory. That belongs to Him eternally. That's why in John 17, 5 He said to the Father, restore to Me the glory I had with You before the world began. That glory He eternally possessed, the divine glory of the eternal Son of God. He always possessed that intrinsic glory as God. But in the gospel, his glory is manifested in a new way. In a new way. The gospel allows the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to be demonstrated in a new way. And I think the most wonderful way to understand that, perhaps, is to look at Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, we have a repeated phrase. If you look down to verse 6, you'll see a phrase, to the praise of the glory of His grace. To the praise of the glory of His grace. That is really the new revelation of His glory. He is glorious as the image of God. But there is a new manifestation of that glory, the glory of His grace. By His death and by His resurrection, He triumphed to provide regeneration for His people. He defeated Satan, conquered death, satisfied divine justice, propitiated God's wrath, redeemed, reconciled, rescued His people from judgment and hell, and so perfectly fulfilled that assignment God gave him, that God gave him a name above every name, the name Lord at which every knee should bow. When we go to heaven, no doubt we will celebrate the glory of Christ as a person. But when you look at the saints in heaven, you see particularly that they are praising Him for the glory of His grace. Revelation 4. You have 24 elders. They come before him who sits on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever and ever, and they sing of how worthy he is. He has glory, honor, and power as the creator. But when you come down to chapter 5, the 24 elders and the angelic beings sing a new song, a new song, a new expression of the glory of God. Worthy are you, singing to the Lamb to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then the crescendo, verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Forever we will be worshiping Christ as the sacrificed Lamb. That is the glory of His grace. Yes, we will worship Him as the Creator. But the celebration crescendos past creation to the glory of His grace. This is the high point of His glory. Do you understand that? When we get to heaven, He will be the slain lamb with the scars. Salvation, grace will be the primary theme of heaven. As glorious as He is, as brightly as He shines, as wondrous is His eternal light of perfection, and as blessed as the glory of His grace appears in the gospel, the perishing and the blind cannot see it. Do they have any hope? This is where we turn to verse 6. How can the dead sinner, the blind sinner, believe? For God said, he's looking back to Genesis 1:3, let there be light, light shall shine out of darkness. That's creative. God spoke light into existence in creation. And the one who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. How do you come to a correct understanding of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ? Because God does a creative miracle. God shines in our hearts. Light shall shine out of darkness. Salvation is the light of Christ shining in the darkened heart. It's a creative act. That's why Second Corinthians 5.17 says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new what? Creature. You have been created. You're a new creation. And again, thinking of Ephesians chapter 1, unmistakably, the apostle Paul gives all credit to God. Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. God willed to speak life to us. Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John 3, and Nicodemus says, how can a man experience the new birth, regeneration, being born from above? And our Lord doesn't say, well, pray this prayer and that will take care of it. The Lord says, well, it's like the wind. It blows where it wills. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but you feel it. So it is with the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit, a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. What role does the sinner have? The, the, sinner, the sinner's role is to believe, to repent and believe. Can an unaided sinner repent? No. That's why Paul says God has to grant repentance. Can an unaided sinner believe? No. That's why you're saved by grace and that not of yourselves even the faith is a gift of God. God gives you the gift of repentance and faith because He wills to give you life. So what are all these people doing trying to come up with mechanisms that are going to save people? I saw that most bizarre statement about a, a Christian singer who died that his greatest achievement was leading millions to Christ. What? That's not a human achievement. I don't know what it even refers to. There's only one way that people will ever be redeemed and taken out of their death and darkness, and that is by a sovereign, creative miracle of God which produces in them repentance and faith at the hearing of the gospel. So what do we do? We preach not ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord. And then God does the rest. At least I can move on to one other point this morning. (laughs) Number six. We're just slaves. He ends verse 6 by saying we are doulos. Or rather, verse 5, we are doulos. We are slaves for Jesus' sakes. We're nothing more than that. We're slaves who have been given the responsibility to deliver the truth. God does the saving. And that introduces us to the next conviction. This is conviction number six. Paul was certain about his own insignificance. He was certain about his own insignificance. And the the contrast is, is just extreme. He's been talking about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This grand phrase about... Deity, eternal glory. And then he says in verse seven, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, clay pots. This is a startling contrast. The shining glory of the majesty of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. This is pure heavenly holy glory. He is fully aware of the unparalleled glory of God shining in the face of Christ and in the gospel. He's also fully aware of this, that He has no glory, that He is a frail, weak, common clay pot. That's what that means. This is the stark reality that you have to embrace. You have to be certain of this. Christ is everything, and you are nothing. You're not the reason anyone is redeemed. It is a priceless treasure in a cheap clay pot. Paul is acknowledging he's nothing. He's not defending himself as some great evangelist, some great preacher, some great teacher. He's saying, I'm just a clay pot. I have this treasure, this New Covenant Gospel of Glory in Ostrakennos, a clay pot, cheap, common, breakable, replaceable, valueless, and ugly. It's a clay pot. You use them to put a plant in. You fill them with dirt. But in ancient times, clay pots were used to bury valuables. Put your valuables in a clay pot, dig a hole, and put it there. They were also used to remove the household waste. They were the, the garbage. They were the receptacles of the sewage of the house. It's very, very graphic language. The same word is used in 2 Timothy 2.20. There are vessels unto honor and there are vessels unto dishonor. This, this vessel has no intrinsic value. They accused Paul of being weak. They said his speech is contemptible, his personality is unimpressive, and he agreed. He's a clay pot. Now if I think about Martin Luther, he had an enemy, Sir Thomas Moore, and Moore liked to call Luther a privy pot, sort of a portable outhouse. This is what he said. Luther has nothing in his mouth but privy's filth and dung, with which he plays the buffoon. He would cast into his mouth the dung which other men would spit into a basin. If he will leave off the folly and rage and the till now too familiar mad ravings against the Catholic Church, if he would swallow down his filth and lick the dung with which he has so foully defiled his tongue and his pen, to carry nothing in his mouth but bilge water and sewage, we will take timely counsel whether we wish to leave this mad friar and privy-minded rascal with his ragings and ravings and filth, etc. Thomas More. Luther would have probably said what Isaiah said. I'm a man of unclean lips. Luther probably wouldn't have argued about that. He knew that he was just a clay pot. He didn't deserve that. In 1 Corinthians 4, just to prove my point, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, Paul says, I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. They, they see us as fools for Christ's sake. This is sarcasm, but you're prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, and we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless, and we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. And then this, we have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. Scum and dregs is what's left at the bottom of the garbage after you've dumped it out. It's the crust on the bottom of the container, the lowest, most degraded thing possible. Paul is saying that's how we are considered. And in reality, we admit we are clay pots. Peter, in writing to leaders in First Peter, says, Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. The point of this is that the power of the glorious gospel is not the product of human genius or technique. It's not the container. It's the glory of the truth, Right? We're just weak, common, plain, fragile, breakable, dishonorable garbage buckets. But this amazing thing, our weakness does not prove fatal to the gospel cause because the power doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on us. It depends completely on God. Go back to verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, clay pots, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. The weaker the pot, the more powerful the gospel. Paul was faithful to the end. Because he didn't overestimate himself. So that he thought himself to deserve better than he got. He knew his ministry was a mercy. He was concerned about the purity of his heart. He was concerned about the accuracy of his teaching and preaching. He knew the results depended on God. And he knew he was just a clay pot. Those are the the convictions that sustained him to the end where he could say, I have fought the good fight, kept the faith, finished the course. Let me just sum it up in a simple statement. Your ability to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel all through your life is built on your convictions about the gospel. Do you believe it is the unparalleled truth? Have you lost sight of the amazing privilege of proclaiming it, that mercy of all mercies, letting you be a spokesperson for God? Have you guarded your purity? Can you proclaim the Word accurately? Are you humble? Enough to recognize that all results come from God and that all He asks you to do is deliver the truth and He'll take care of the rest? And if you get discouraged, is it just because you think maybe you're more significant than you are? Well, we have much more to go, as you can tell, because there's a half a chapter left. We're going to leave that for next time. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we come again asking that You would do a work in our hearts today, that You would bring us before the shining, blazing light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. We may see... Not just His glory as the image of God, but the glory of His grace. A glory that embraces us. His glory as the image of God would have burned us to cinders. Even Moses couldn't look at the glory of God without disintegrating. But we can look at Christ and at the glory of His grace Because in that grace is forgiveness and access and the covering of righteousness. We want to be the people that you desire us to be. That's our only heart's desire.
3: You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. Once again,
0: that was Sean McCaster. If you want to find out more about him, go to gty.org. And now, once again, just gty.org. And what I do now is play concrete.
2: prayer. given now we can pray to our father in heaven above we can come to our god at any time of the day and he'll receive us so great his love he wants us to talk to him with a sincere heart and rejoice when we're really glad and when it seems like things are falling apart we can pray when we're feeling
5: beginning, God created. This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter in Northern Kentucky. At our Creation Museum, we summarize biblical history with the seven C's of history. Now it's the history that explains biology, geology, anthropology, cosmology, and more. The first C is creation. God created the earth and universe in just six 24-hour days. We're told this creation was very good. It was perfect. Now, Genesis contains detailed chronologies, so we know there are only 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham. Abraham lived 4,000 years ago, so that gives an age of about 6,000 years for Earth's history. The first see, God created a perfect world in six days.
6: Plan your visit to the Creation Museum when you go to AnswersRadio.com. See biblical history come to life. Stroll our spectacular gardens and meet our zoo animals. AnswersRadio.com
2: The image of the beautiful most high God told them, Be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree, do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test, and ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So, as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this there's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. Be- <laughs>
5: A Broken Creation This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Apologetics and Evangelistic Ministry of Answers in Genesis. This week we're looking at the seven seas of history. It's this history that's the biological, geological, anthropological and cosmological history of the whole universe. Yesterday we saw the first sea was creation. God created a perfect world 6,000 years ago. Well, our world isn't very good any longer. So what happened? That's the second sea, corruption. The first two people, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God's command. They chose disobedience knowing their penalty was death. And when they sinned, they broke God's very good creation. Now it's cursed and filled with pain, death, and suffering. This world is not how God created it to be.
6: Discover the seven seas of history when you visit the Creation Museum in Northern Kentucky. There's so much more to discover for the whole family. Plan your visit at AnswersRadio.com.
1: A mighty.
5: A worldwide flood. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's Word and the Gospel. This week we're looking at the seven seas of history, and so far we've creation just 6,000 years ago and the corruption of God's once very good creation because of sin. Well, Adam and Eve's descendants became increasingly wicked. God once again judged sin and this time with a catastrophe, the third sea. Around 1,600 years after creation, God sent a global flood to destroy all life outside the ark as a punishment for sin. Now, this flood laid down most of the rock layers and fossils we see all around the world. They aren't the result of millions of years. They're a reminder of the year-long flood about 4,300 years ago.
6: Explore the seven seas of history when you come to our Creation Museum in Northern Kentucky. Children 10 and under are free all of 2021. So plan your visit at AnswersRadio.com.
5: This is Ken Ham, head of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark near Cincinnati. Today we finish learning the seven C's of history. We've looked at the first four, the biological, geological, and anthropological and cosmological history of the universe. Well, the last three C's are grounded in that history. The fifth C is Christ. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, came and did what we can't do. He obeyed God perfectly. The sixth C is cross. Jesus then died on the cross in our place, taking our penalty of death on himself, and he arose conquering sin and death. He offers eternal life to those who trust in him. And the final C, consummation. Someday Jesus will establish the new heavens and new earth with no more death.
6: Discover the good news of the gospel when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. Be encouraged to trust God's word and think biblically when you go to AnswersRadio.com. As a former clergy member, somebody who used to work in the Methodist Church, who has a Master of Divinity, I know Biblical Hebrew and Koine Greek. I've translated multiple books of the Bible. Homosexuality is literally does not exist in the original text. Nope, in the 1940s, the word homosexuality was invented by biblical scholars translating the RSV translation in order to propagate homophobia. So it's listed nowhere in Scripture, nor does Jesus ever talk about it. And before anybody's like, oh, well, in Leviticus, it talks about man shall not lie with man. Well, first and foremost, an American publishing company did that. That's not in the original text either. Because so if you look at the Martin Luther Bible, the German word that used to use is
7: Knobben, which means boy, talking about pedophilia. So take several seats. Every
5: word of what you just said...
7: LGBTQ activists Ed Oxford and Kathy Baldock invented the myth that the word homosexual was put in the Revised Standard Translation of the Bible in 1946 as some kind of hate-the-gays conspiracy. But God has always condemned men having sex with men. Before homosexual, the English word was sodomite. You can find it in older translations. She says the passage in Leviticus condemns pedophilia in German. That's another Ed Oxford myth. It does not matter what the German translation says. Your English Bible is translated from Hebrew and Greek, which she acknowledged at the start of her video. Smug TikTok women cannot change 2,000 years of biblical history. Psalm 94 says they pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. When we understand the text, like it says, that's when we
0: understand. It, when you understand the text. And it's short. uh, It's W-W-U-T-T. And check that out on YouTube, W-W-U-T-T.
7: And now here's another one. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So this means Christians must do whatever the government tells them to do, right? And never criticize even wicked rulers, capiche? No, that's not what this means. To be subject means to yield to authority. And as Christians, we recognize there is no authority except from God. Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. That's quite a statement to make to a ruler of Rome, and yet Jesus submitted to that authority in submission to the Father. Now, some will say we should critique policies, not people, but evil policies come from evil people. Abortion, same-sex marriage, porn, transgender laws, drag queen story hour at the public library, these things are wicked. Jesus said out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, and evil policies. John the Baptist spoke out against King Herod's sin, and John was beheaded. He did not merely critique policies. He critiqued an unlawful life, not by Rome's standards, but God's. His word has authority over all people, even in the government. The Bible says that the Lord's servant corrects opponents with gentleness. We can do this. In fact, we must, and still be subject to the governing authorities when we understand the text.
2: God make?
8: All things.
2: Why did God make all things?
8: For His glory.
2: How can you glorify God?
8: By loving Him and doing what He commands.
2: Where do you learn how to love and obey God?
8: In the Bible.
2: What's the Bible?
8: God's Word. God's word. God's word. God's
2: than one God?
8: No, there is only one God.
2: And how many persons does this one God exist?
8: Three persons.
2: Who are the three persons?
8: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
2: Where is God?
8: God is everywhere.
2: Can you see God?
8: No, I cannot see God, but He always sees me.
2: Who were our first parents?
8: Adam and Eve.
2: What did Adam and Eve do?
8: They sinned against God. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God.
2: Why did God send Jesus into the world?
8: To save his people from their sins.
2: What did Jesus do to save his people from their sins?
8: He died on the cross and he rose from the grave.
2: to do at the end of the age?
8: He's going to come back and judge the world.
2: What must a person do to be saved?
8: Believe in the gospel.
2: What is the gospel?
8: The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection.
2: And how is a person saved?
8: By God's grace alone.
2: And what is
9: grace?
8: God's kindness to the undeserving. Undeserving. undeserving.
9: Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O o.com truthbetoldradio.com Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username links. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S M I L E S A N D S T U F F dot C-O-M. SmilesandStuff.com. So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
1: Beautiful,
0: then with the and that's all I got for a show. Then go out with Yasia first, and a will B- really... I Bye for now. The
1: B- I-